Hello, Katawanto, Kierakam, the Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific, Mikoroi Hawkins. Coming up first. Well, basically, we, we have not been able to get access to F- uh, foreign currencies. Papua New Guinea's weekend fuel crisis is over, but for how long? Also, we find out who Micronesia's candidate will be for Secretary General of the Pacific Islands Forum. And later on. The Media Act, we thought we'd look into the Act, and uh, what we found was a plethora of problems. Fiji's government promises to review repressive media laws. Petrol pumps in Port Moresby are in full operation again after supply became extremely limited on Friday, continuing through until Monday. Papua New Guinea Today reports cars were backed up in long queues and were rationed to about five US dollars worth of fuel per vehicle. Puma Energy imports about 60% of Papua New Guinea's fuel supply. The shortage was due to the company being unable to access foreign currency to buy the fuel. The Bank of Papua New Guinea and Puma Energy are currently in court over the matter. Puma Energy's country director, Hulala Tokome, could not rule out another shortage. He speaks to Caleb Fotheringham about the situation. Is it okay if you could first just tell me what the situation is at the moment in Port Moresby and why is it happening? Yeah, so everything has returned back to normal. We've got fuel being supplied throughout the country again, so there's, there's no issues turning the taps back on, on on Monday evening. Okay, so what did happen? Why was there a fuel shortage? Well, basically, we, we have not been able to get access to F- uh, foreign currency, so that's, that's the whole background to the issue. So access to FX such that we can be allowed to trade and uh, being able to get much-needed oil supplies back into country, whether it's finished products or even crude so that we can be able to refine in country. Why were you not able to get access to foreign currency? Obviously, it's been the Bank of PNG. They've taken us to court on this particular matter, so I can't comment on that as well. How long did the fuel shortages last? The fuel shortage basically hit our retail sites first on Friday. We shortened the market, basically, because we couldn't put a total complete stop until Monday. And then uh, by Monday, we were able to have meetings with the acting prime minister and the Bank of PNG governor. And in good faith, we were able to restore supply back into country. Are you the country's main supplier for fuel into the country? Yeah, we are, but there's others who actually bring in fuel, obviously bring in fuel. There's Exxon, there's New Guinea Oil, there's also Islands Petroleum. So there's a number of other oil companies that actually bring fuel into the country. How much percentage would you say that your company brings in? I would say we would probably in the market share of about 60%. I'm aware that Permit Energy sent something to the national airline. Are you happy to just tell me what that was? So we've already restored supply to the national airline and even to the smaller airline, so um, there's no issues with regards to that. Were they affected for a moment? Um, they, 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 they would have been able to provide a response back through to that. I think they were on the papers yesterday that they had minimal disruptions to the, to the airlines here. What about other people in PNG? Were they quite heavily affected by this? Were they able to still drive? Well, because we had shortened supply, there was other oil companies which were supplying fuel. We also had other other suppliers in the market who were able to provide that, so it's not as if uh, it was a total stop. We also had our service stations which were rationing fuel as well. Will this happen again? Um, I can't say no. I think the thing is, at the end of the day, uh, for us, you know, it's access to FX. It's being able to allow us to trade. Like I said before, I can't comment on that because it's a matter before the courts at the moment. So it's, um, it's, it's a case where I can't comment on this. In terms of the next few months, though, does it look like you've got enough supply? 
Um, at this point in time, again, like I said, I can't comment on that because it's before the courts. Because at the end of the day, if we can't be able to trade, how else are we going to supply fuel in countries? The President of the Republic of Palau is confident the Pacific Islands Forum will never be fractured again, a sentiment echoed amongst Micronesian leaders following a summit last week. Serangil Whips Jr. spoke with Lydia Lewis ahead of a special leaders retreat that kicks off in Fiji on Thursday local time. He says his focus will be firmly on healing past fractures through the Suva Agreement. This is really the first time that the whole Pacific is back together and it's talking about those issues that are most dear to our hearts. Climate change, right? Uh, that's, I think, at the top of everybody's list. And for Palau, of course, it's the protection of the oceans. And one of the agreements in the Suva Agreement is that to oper- operationalize the Suva Agreement, there would be an office of the Ocean Commissioner. Nauru has already pledged to have a candidate for the Ocean Commissioner, but Palau wants to be the host for the Ocean Commissioner's office. And we're very much looking forward to being the host and to be able to push that agenda on protecting our oceans, to use them sustainably, because we are ocean, large ocean states. We are, and the ocean is what provides our livelihood, what takes care of us and sustains us. So, so important to the Pacific and especially to the Pacific Islands. We as Micronesian leaders needed to get together. Of course, that finally happened. We were able to meet, we were able to meet Pompeii and come up with the Palakir uh, communique, which basically outlined the operationalizes the Suva agreement, which is having a regional office for PIF. It was agreed that that is going to Kiribati. It was also agreed that there will be a, an office commissioner's office. That's agreed that it's going to Palau. And then the next ocean commissioner to be appointed immediately will come from the Marshall Islands. Marshall Islands has already has a candidate to submit at this meeting. And also Nauru already is ready, has a name to submit as the secretary general at this meeting, which will uh, change next year in April. So, Do you have a name um, yet for the Secretary-General position that they're going to put forward, the candidate? Yeah, I think it's uh, been uh, shared that it's uh, President uh, Baron uh, Waka, who used to uh, be president of Nauru. For the Ocean Commissioner, it's, he's the current Deputy Secretary-General, and he's from Marshall Islands. His name is uh, Philemon. Do you see Palau as an engine for unity? What's most important is that we are truthful, we stick to our commitments, and we're open and transparent. So I think that's what Palau has always stood for. It wasn't, it wasn't about splitting the Pacific. It was about being heard and being understood. And I think that's really what the, the Suba Agreement is about. It's about implementing an agreement that really brings us together and really shows the commitment of the rest of the Pacific Islands to work together. And, uh, you know, I, I really thank Australia and New Zealand for their leadership. Australia said, we'll, we'll fund the, the regional office for the PIF. Of course, New Zealand, and I, you know, I thank uh, New Zealand for stepping forward and saying, we'll fund the uh, office of the Ocean Commissioner. And I think those were important offices to show that we're not forgotten up here in the North Pacific. We are part of PIF. We, uh, the PIF wants to be inclusive, wants to bring everybody together. Is there going to be a need for more funding over and above what is already being committed for those offices that you've mentioned? My understanding at the Nsuba, when we had our meetings, it was clear that uh, they would be taken care of by Australia and New Zealand. So there's no other funding, to my knowledge, that's needed. There's funding to begin those offices Wonderful. immediately. Just how strong is Micronesia now? 
we're stronger than ever. It was, you know, a great meeting in Pompeii, a really an opportunity for all the presidents to be there and, and really have good dialogue. And President Malma was, was there for a couple of days, which was uh, fantastic. I had gotten to meet him in, in Egypt. You know, that was really the first opportunity for all of us to meet in, basically in, in three years. So uh, it's, uh, it's always good to have those face-to-face meetings. Everybody being in the same room, understanding what we stood for and, under, and, and being able to work together and say, okay, let's discuss, let's be open, let's help each other make the best decision for the region. And uh, that, that, that's what it's all about. Why wasn't Mr. Zakios put forward again for the SG role? The understanding was that the SG decision was uh, Marshall Islands uh, was the candidate. You know, names are tossed around from Palau, but we we, we said, you know, we, we, we defer that uh, appointment to the Marshall Islands. But at the, uh, at the end, the Marshall Islands said that maybe in the spirit of unity, of course, Zacchaeus's name was there. However, you know, it was really at the end between Puna and Zacchaeus. And if we really want to bring the Pacific together, maybe putting out Zacchaeus' name will still be the competition between the two, and we need to rise above that. And I think that that's really the message that uh, Marshall Islands was saying was, you know, let's turn a new chapter. Let's start from new and be able to allow for healing. And we respect that and really commend them for, uh, you know, saying those things and, and being really committed to Pacific unity. The head of the University of the South Pacific's journalism program says there are concerns about an ongoing review of Fiji's repressive media laws, but they're giving the new coalition government the benefit of the doubt. Media freedom in the Pacific country took a dive in 2010 with the introduction of the Media Industry Development Act by the Fiji First Government led by former Prime Minister Frank Bainimarama. Though watered down over the years, it's still repressive and contains exorbitant penalties and even jail time for media practitioners in the country who break the law. The new coalition government under Sitiveni Rambuka has promised to review the laws, but Shailendra Singh says seeing is believing. I spoke with Professor Singh and began by asking him to describe Fiji's media environment before 2010. Okay, so before, see, Fiji media, before the change, media was relatively free, certainly freer than before the Media Act was introduced in June 2010. I think I wrote a paper in which I described the media freedom situation in Fiji, media rights in Fiji, as to being almost on the same level as Australia and New Zealand, which is saying a lot compared to what has happened after June 2010. Um, like no one was really afraid to speak openly and there were no punitive laws in place and the, the scene was quite robust. There were a lot of discussion and there were adequate laws in place to take care of the situation where the media to step out of line, for example, defamation. So the Media Act, as you know, was implemented in June 2010 and uh, we did some research on the 10th anniversary uh, of, the, of the Media Act. We thought we'd look into the Act and uh, what we found was a plethora of problems. And of course, you know, PNG is about to introduce its own Media Act, and we feel that some of our findings are relevant for PNG as well. The first thing that we were concerned about, I mean, this is way back in 2010, June, uh, in 2010, was the lack of consultation with the media sector before the Act was implemented. 
This is the Fiji media sector I'm talking about. Now, PNG, I've read, has extended consultations by a week, and even that is deemed insufficient. Now, in Fiji, the media were given less than three hours to provide f- feedback on a really complex 50-page legal document. Imagine that, just, you know, two and a half hours, I think it was. Um, so there was one major concern. Right from the outset, there were problems with the lack of consultation. Okay, in PNG, at least some time is given. Maybe I think it's about two weeks in total, if I'm not mistaken. They said they'll extend it by a week. Uh, so that's one problem. Now, the second problem we found in our analysis uh, was that the government officials' powers in the Fiji Media Act meant that the media had actually transited from self-regulation to government regulation. So you were asking about what the situation was before the Media Act came into place. So prior to the Media Act, the, the media were self-regulated. After the Media Act, it became government-regulated. I think the only country in the South Pacific where the media was government-regulated. Media self-regulation is a hallmark of a free media in a democratic situation, okay? It, it, it's, a, it's a hallmark of democracy. And government-regulated media is kind of seen as undemocratic in a democratic setting or in a democratic country. So since independence and even before independence, the Fiji media, as I was saying, was quite free based on the fourth estate model, watchdog of government. Uh, once the media came under government control, it represented a profound change in Fiji's media history. So the question before us today is whether PNG is going through the same process and will it also end up like Fiji? Yes, no, very important points raised there. I remember coming to Fiji from Solomon Islands, I think it was a year after the the media um, uh, act was brought in. I think it was still a decree, I think it was called at the time. And I noticed the difference in our Solomon Islands newspapers in terms of content and what was the front page and all of this. And I just re- saw the difference in what the front page was and the different stories inside were um, quite quite pro-government and even like government releases. And I sort of asked, so I asked my auntie, like, did you see anything wrong with the paper layout or the... And she said, no, that's the news, like, you know, for a normal, just a normal person reading the news. So I, I what my question is, what was the impact of... Uh, this act of this law on the media landscape, but also the the type of of information that was being consumed by the Fijian public. So, yeah, the media became much more subdued than before uh, because of the punitive measures in the media, in the Fiji Media Act. Uh, They were not willing to take risks because not only was there possibility of steep fines, but also jail terms for the editors and the publishers, as well as the broadcasters. Uh, one of the few changes to the Media Act after a number of years was that the penalties, the punitive measures against journalists was removed. So if you are a rank-and-file ordinary journalist, you were kind of immune. There were no fines or jail terms against you if you breached the Act. But this was seen as a half measure or ineffective in that the penalties for the editors and publishers remained intact. So this was seen as a very clever, indirect way of imposing censorship. So the censorship burden, so to speak, was passed on to the editors and the publishers. Because they were exposed and because they were at risk themselves, uh, it was thought that they would keep the reporters in line. 
So they would impose censorship on the work of their journalists for the, for the sake of their own safety and for the uh, organization's sake in order not to incur any fines. Because, see, the, the, the media organizations could be fined up to $100,000. Now, we, in our research, we found this to be excessive. Given the small size of the Fiji media sector and the low profit margins, as well as the low salaries of uh, editorial staff, the fines seem quite disproportionate. And this was also against international benchmark, which calls for the penalties to be proportionate to the level of, not only the level of offending, as well as, you know, the income, the income levels. And these are, the, these are all the things we think that PNG should look out for in its own draft media act. Now, Fiji's in, had a change in, in government, and um, it seems a change in attitude towards uh, the Media Act. There's been some reconciliatory ceremonies held, um, a, a lot of talanoa around the aspect. Um, what's the opportunity here and what, what are the pathways forward for reforming Fiji's Media Act? Now, the new government has been making the right noises. In one of my articles I wrote, that the Media Act, the Fiji Media Act, is still in place, uh, but it is effectively redundant. This is because the new government is unlikely to invoke that Media Act, having criticized it so much. Uh, And also, they are already now working on a new Media Act. Now, initially, I remember during campaigning, the opposition parties, the Deputy Prime Minister, Mr. Bill Ngavoka, he was talking about repealing the Act completely. But now they are talking about revising or replacing the Media Act. So the Media Act will still be in place, but hopefully it will be a watered-down version that will not impede on the role of the news media, which plays a very important part in any democratic setting. So it is really essential that we have a strong and robust media. It is also important that uh, the media also show some consideration for the Fiji context. Yes, we agree that we've got a cool culture in Fiji and we also have ethnic tensions in Fiji. And these are the things that the news media have to factor in in their daily work. So the opportunities are there, but we won't know for sure until we see the new act, uh, what what shape or form it takes. And uh, if it's excessively punitive, then we would have seen no improvement. And there is a little bit of concern because the reality is this. Any government, almost any government, once they gain some kind of hold, authority, or power over the news media, usually they are very reluctant to let go of it. Any hard-earned power over the media, hard-acquired power over the media, they would not let go of it easily. Because as you know, part of the media's job is to criticize government and hold government to account. And, uh, you know, any government, most governments, they don't like that. And if they can sort of blunt, you know, the media's, the media in some way, I think, by and large, they will take the opportunity. But we will give this new government the benefit of the doubt. I think they understand the damaging impact that the Fiji media has had uh, on media rights for more than a decade now in Fiji. That's Pacific Waves for today. Remember, you can download us for free to your device from Spotify, iHeart or Apple Podcasts. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can also find us. Look at me next time more.